Today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners, who for more than 25 years have successfully delivered interim and permanent leadership talent to transform businesses. To hire the talent you need to enable your business to thrive, visit www.progressotalent.com today. Janet Milner-Walker is the founder of beauty brand consultancy Bespoke Advantage. Having grown up in South Africa, she embarked upon a hugely successful corporate career with esteemed international brands such as Dubai-based luxury group Altair, the world's leading diamonds company De Beers, and the likes of bastions of UK retail Boots and Marks and Spencers. We get into growing up in South Africa, travelling around the world, her role as an ambassador for the great fruit adventure, the huge growth, disruption and global opportunity for the beauty industry and the challenging and rapidly changing face of retail and consumer behaviour. What has she learned along the way? Without further ado, let's get into it. First and foremost, Janet, welcome. Uh, Great to see you once again. And I guess always intrigued to start with the now and perhaps from your perspective, uh, the catalyst behind the creation of Beauty Brand Consultancy. What was it? Lee, thank you very much for inviting me to join you on your show. It's a pleasure to be here. So just a little bit of uh, background in terms of how I arrived at where I'm at in my life. It, it, was a bit of, it wasn't a straightforward route, let's put it that way. So as you can hear, I'm South African and I started my career in South Africa. But initially I started out studying to be a chartered accountant, which is obviously completely different to what I landed up doing. And it was when I was sitting in an accounting firm and I was studying full time through um, in the evenings, rather through open university and working full time. And I was sitting in this accounting firm in South Africa, looking around me and thinking everybody was in a gray suit, a lot older than me. And I wasn't feeling inspired. So it was at that point I decided to change track and I studied purchasing and supply chain management and went into retail. Well, at that time, I went into buying, working for a contract manufacturer in South Africa, and they developed skincare, cosmetics, fragrances for a lot of the retailers. They're also a distributor, and they were the distributor for Kaniba Cosmetics for South Africa. So I started out doing product development and also being the buyer for Kaniba and was fortunate enough to go out and meet Kaniba in Japan as well. And then from there, I moved across to the UK and worked for a number of companies, including Marks and Spencer's Boots, Body Shop, Crabtree and Evelyn, um, moved out to the Middle East and worked for a luxury group called Altair Group as head of buying merchandising for Harvey Nichols. So we opened up the Mall of Emirates in Dubai and moved back thanks to a relationship, back to the UK. And the last uh, role I did before I set up my own business was working for a global travel retail company called the Heinemann Group, which were based in Germany. And they bought out a company in the UK. And we developed products for the airlines, so for Emirates, Virgin, British Airways. So it was a really interesting job. But Heinemann bought out the company in the UK, so everything moved over to Germany. And at that point, I thought, well, there isn't really anybody else I want to work for because I've worked for some great companies and I've really enjoyed my career. But I'd always said to myself at some stage in my life, I'm going to work for myself. What I actually landed up doing wasn't what I do now, interestingly enough. 
was a bit of a detour. So I've, I've actually started out um, importing products from South Africa and selling it into the UK markets and realized I actually preferred developing products rather than selling other people's products. And people came to me because of my background in beauty and asked me to provide support in their business. And it was there that I actually established Bespoke Advantage. So it, it's been as you can hear, a roundabout route, but I must say I'm incredibly happy with what I'm doing. I work with some fantastic clients and a lot of what I did in my career, I've managed to transfer into my business. So when you go back to uh, studying as a chartered accountant, where had, I, I guess, had that been something that you, I mean, it's clearly a great foundation from which to develop a business career. I think I'm right in saying that if, if just by way of an example, Certainly at one point, I don't know if it's still true today, but there was something like more than 50%, 52, 53% of FTSE 100 chief execs were qualified accountants. It's, it's yes. clearly a great, a great business qualification. But had, there, had that been a sort of, had been brought up with, with that in mind? Had it been something that you decided perhaps when at school you had a natural, a natural head for figures and therefore to explore that was, was the obvious route? Well, my father was a chartered accountant and I did accountancy at school and I enjoyed it. But it was when I was working in an accountancy firm, realized I'm also, I've got two sides, I guess, that I enjoy doing. I am commercial, but I'm also creative. And with accountancy, it was very much all about the commercial side, but not necessarily the creative side. And actually, interestingly, that, that was actually a really good foundation for um, my next move in terms of my career, because working in buying, you need to be commercial, but equally you need to be creative. So that, that actually stood me in good stead. And I've, I'm, I'm pleased I did that because, as you say, a lot of businesses, business owners, actually people in, in business come from a commercial background, so a financial background. So it is really helpful to have. And, and why purchasing and supply chain? What was the appeal of that from your perspective? Well, that's interesting as well, because when I studied buying, there wasn't really something in buying. So purchasing and supply chain management was all about logistics, but the working with the suppliers, but it was also, it was a combination of different things. So it was actually finance, it was law, it was all about logistics and to a degree product um, and working with factories as well. So that was really good because I guess what, and as my career progressed, what was different about my career is some people who went into buying either came from, had studied food if they went down the food route, or maybe they studied fashion and went down the fashion route. There, there wasn't really anything in the marketplace in terms of beauty. So actually, all the things I did led to me almost molding something that actually worked for me. So the purchasing side helped because I did product development. So I worked. So throughout my career, I've worked with factories in China and across different marketplaces. So you need to understand that side of the business, but also you need to understand marketing. A lot of marketing. Uh, I later studied um, a master's degree in marketing as well. So in a roundabout way, I pieced together all the information that I needed, and that actually differentiated me when I was working in that field as well. And, and you mentioned. Putting words in your mouth now to some degree, but words to the effect of, as if, if if I heard you correctly, that rather than selling other people's products, developing your own products was was more appealing to you. Where where do you think where do you think that had stemmed from? Had you always had that sort of creative capability, ambition? Is that is that part of inherent part of, of who you are? I am a, I'm a creative person from a, uh, I love writing, although I haven't written a book yet, but I do love writing. So I love words and I'm creative. I, I can't draw, I can't sew, 
Um, I'm not, I certainly can't do MasterChef. So I'm not creative in that respect, but I, I love writing and I love words. And so I'm creative to that degree. In terms of product developments, although, I, yeah, so I'm very good at taking things and putting things together. And I'm also fairly good at looking at future trends and identifying where the marketplace is going. So I think that's what I really enjoy. And that's a lot of what we do in Bespoke Advantage. So we work, rather than having our own brand of products, we work with our clients to develop their businesses and their brands from concept to shelf. So people often come to us with just an initial idea, and then we work with them to take that idea and to build it into a business. So it's a much lengthier and larger vision and process that we've taken through. But yes, I think I've always been good at looking at something and then thinking, right, that's the start. Let, let's see what we can do with it and building it into something else. So tell me, how do you think the success that you enjoyed through your corporate career, and you'd worked through with, and you'd alluded to this, some esteemed names from the likes of De Beers, Boots, Marks and Spencers, I mean, fabulous global brands. What do you think you learned from your corporate career that has enabled you to make a success of running your own business? So I've been very fortunate in terms of the people that I've worked for. As you say, I've worked for some really good companies and I'm very pleased that I've had that opportunity. It's definitely helped me in my own business from a number of aspects. So one is obviously because what I do within our business is built from what I did in my career. It's an extension to a large degree of what I did throughout my career. That that's obviously helped me in terms of building the foundation for my business because I understand I understand how to develop a brand from an idea all the way through to launching it into retailers or into travel retail for that matter, as well as into international markets. So it's helped me in in terms of all the uh, cool skill sets that you know understanding retail, understanding marketing, understanding factories, having worked with factories in China as well as having those relationships in place already. So knowing where to source, if somebody comes to us with a particular idea, knowing where to source those products from as well, and also knowing the people that I need to pick up the phone and talk to. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's been very beneficial. But I wouldn't say it's been easy because I think when you work in a large organization like those companies, you've got the support of a big team around you. The other things, you're not actually building the business from scratch. So you, when you're working for yourself, you building that business so nothing exists until you create it so even though you might know how to do it it takes time to build all these things as well as find clients and service those clients at the same time did you was it uh do you remember how you felt that first day when uh you're sat there with bespoke advantage it's day one do you remember the the range of emotions as to how you felt and and therefore how did you feel well actually strangely enough i felt um Exposed is a strange word to use, but probably because I've always, up until that point, um, apart from the very brief, as I explained to you earlier, the very brief detour I took, up until that point, I'd always worked for a big company. So I've always had very big brands behind me. So it's very different when you're showing up in your own business, particularly when it's your business, you've named it, you've created it, you are the business and putting yourself forward because you, you know, you have all these thoughts going through your mind in terms of what are people going to think, which really shouldn't be the priority. The priority should be about the customer and finding the customer and servicing your clients. But um, I think when you are, as a lot of business owners are, when you are the first person in your business, you're, and the only person in your business, you are 
the face of your business. You are the business. So you do tend to, I think a lot of people probably could relate to that in terms of feeling exposed. Mm, absolutely. It's, just, it's, a, it's I, I guess you go through that, it's everything from exposed is a great word. I think there's an element of being a little scared, excited, I would imagine as well. And that sense of, you know, well, it's all on me now. It's all on these shoulders. Mm. And I think there's, there's undeniably times where, you know, if you're working for the likes of a Marks and Spencer's, that brand recognition, people will acknowledge. We know who they are. We know what they're about. We know what they represent, certainly in terms of yes, how they might yeah. be perceived. Whereas when it's your own, you've got to create all of that from the get-go. And it's uh, it's a big mountain to climb, is it? What, 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 what were some of the earlier challenges that you might have faced? So the earlier challenges that I faced, uh, well, like most people, I guess, when you start a business is um, great. So the business is great. It's up and running. So where's the client? Mm. So luckily, the, the first client that came to me was through word of mouth, through somebody I'd worked with previously. And, and actually, the client wasn't even based in the UK. So that was interesting because I started Bespoke Advantage in October 2017. So the very first client that I worked with was based in Albania. So I didn't, everything that we did was done online, which was good, actually, because that formed the foundation for moving forward as well. So that was, it was the whole tech side of things and thinking, right, I know how to do all of this when I'm working with people one-to-one or we can have a face-to-face meeting, but now everything's being done online. So I created everything as I went through that process at the same time as delivering it. So that was quite challenging. I would imagine though, if we jump, sorry to interrupt there, but if we jump into where we are today, I mean, I think if I look at, you know, much of the technology that through these times of the, uh, of the pandemic through COVID-19, you know, we're, we're constantly, there's not a day goes by where one of us doesn't face a Zoom conversation or whatever the mechanism might be, but there are so many of the, this technology has been around, uh, it's not new, but it's certainly been heavily utilized through these times in a way that I would imagine it wasn't prior and it just seems to me that people are now very accepting, well, this is just the way things are. But if you even go back just simply three years ago to 2017, still, and I understand the, the rationale behind it, still so much business, and I, I'm sure we'll in the future, we'll go back to it in some way, but that business being done face-to-face, the fact that you, for want of a better word, digitized from the get-go, I would imagine has stood you in very good stead through the times in which we find ourselves now. Absolutely. So a lot of what I do and a lot of what we do as a team is we work with people online. So not all of our clients, even the clients that are based in London, it saves a lot of time in terms of traveling. Yeah. And necessary time. It's far more productive working online. There are some things you do need to do face to face. And there's some things I liked. Interestingly enough, yesterday I had a meeting with a potential new client who wanted to meet me face to face in London. So, which was quite strange because you would think during these times you'd be able to, and I've done a lot of business online. Yeah. So, but that particular person wanted to meet, they wanted to see the chemistry and they wanted to meet face to face. I think that there, you know, there are so many elements of communication that are so far beyond the the, the spoken word, aren't they? And yeah, you know, and I think that that's, my my sense and my hope is we're all social creatures, and despite the fact that we clearly find ourselves in the in the times in which we find ourselves, I'm convinced we want to go back to you know, meeting people. People we are by nature social creatures. We want to get down face to face, interact, and that's how we. I, I, I'm convinced that's the way we will go back to wanting to do business. I, at least I hope so. I agree with you. I think some of us, I think there's a a lot of convenience and uh, benefits to having the opportunity to do things online. So I've, you know, I've had the opportunity to um, meet and speak with people in Nigeria, in India, in different markets, which is fantastic. 
and you feel like you're almost in the same room when you can see somebody as well. Yeah. But I, th- I haven't given up office space in London because I think for number, I'm a social creature, so I like to be around people. But equally, I think it's important when you're running workshops or meetings, some of those things are probably best delivered where you can in person. And did you, so you go back to, to growing up in South Africa, that, that consistent through much of what we're talking about here, what's coming through to me is that the real drive you have, the passion you have for your own business, which I appreciate is almost oftentimes an overused phrase, but that really does shine through. But I think, where does that stem from? Had you always, you know, you mentioned your father, for example, was in business as a chartered accountant. Had there been a sort of an entrepreneurial bent to the family growing up? Has business formed always part of your life? Or have you always been naturally competitive? Is it, is it, where, where, does it all, uh, where does it all derive from? Well, I, I'm very, I am very driven myself. Mm. I'm naturally driven as a person. I'm always uh, setting myself new goals and new opportunities. I like learning and developing myself as well. Um, so for me, new experiences are very important and constant education is very important for me as well. So in terms of setting up my own business, I think when if you've been to South Africa and you look around South Africa, a lot of South Africans are entrepreneurial. And for a number of reasons, the job market has changed, but also I think it's because it's more of a pioneering nation in, in any case. So South Africa isn't, you know, 18, we talk about the 1820 settlers. So it's not that old when you compare it to other marketplaces. So a lot of people are used to going out and starting their own businesses, or they might work for a company and then decide to start their business a little bit later. I think it's just a natural progression. In fact, most of the people I grew up with all run their own businesses. But um, in terms of me setting up a business, I think had I not enjoyed my own career for so long, which I did, I probably would have set up my business earlier. That was always, it was always at the back of my mind. I was always going to set up my business, even if I'd, you know, qualified as a chartered accountant was something I wanted to do. I probably would have run my accountancy firm. And I think that comes from being independent as well. I'm incredibly independent mm. and I love um, freedom. So freedom and independence is important to me. And I like um, coming up with new ideas as well. So I think I can't, I don't enjoy monotony. So I'm not a person who likes too much routine. I like routine in terms of stability, but not, uh, you know, I get, I like variety as well. Well, I think how much of an advantage do you think it's been to have experienced a number of different cultures that you have? You mentioned that from a corporate perspective, you've, you'd enjoyed experience. You mentioned the Middle East, for example, you clearly grew up in South Africa, you've been in Europe. How much of an advantage do you think it is to have seen the way different cultures um, conduct business, engage with one another, interact socially? How much of an advantage has that been, do you think? A, a huge advantage. That's one of my favorite things is travel. So I was very fortunate because I had the opportunity to travel and do something creative as well as a little bit of commercial side to it as well. So in an ideal world, I had my ideal job, but that also provided me with many advantages in terms of traveling and working with different cultures in different countries. And I think I brought that into my business as well, because naturally being online, uh, it doesn't limit you in terms of where your customer base is. So since we've launched, I've worked with uh, people in different marketplaces. As I said, the very first customer we had was based in Albania. So, and that, uh, for me, that would just be natural, a natural progression of everything else that I've done. But I think it's hugely advantageous in terms of the experiences provided to me. I, understand, I think understanding different cultures is very important, even more so for all of us now, as uh, because I think all of our careers are going to move forward in a different direction. 
whether we stay in the same job or not, the way we do business, I think, is going to change. And I think the more we understand about people and different markets and how to relate to different people, the more important that is. You talk about business change. I agree. I think we're uh, we're in fascinating times. The world has just become, technology has meant that the world has just become a very much smaller place. Uh, and I think the pace of that technology, as you say, one of the things that strikes me, I've got teenage children. I look at, you know, I'm sure, I'm convinced that through the course of their working lives, there'll be jobs that they might well go and do themselves that don't even exist today. I mean, it, it's just a phenomenal pace. But I think if we come back to you know, the, the, the beauty industry, which is a, an industry in which clearly you've spent much of your time, I mean, that has that has changed immeasurably over the last 10 years in particular, to the extent whereby I'd read, you know, that in 2018, it was a half billion dollar global market, but the projections would suggest that will rise to three quarters of a billion by 2025, I think. I mean, it's just just phenomenal growth. What is it that you're seeing that's facilitating that kind of growth in the space? I think a lot of things, as you say, certainly over the last 10 years that has changed dramatically. A lot of this is driven by technology. Previously in the beauty industry, if we go back more than 10 years ago, if we look at traditional retail as well, you would go into a department store and traditionally in beauty, you would have your beauty floor on the ground floor of a department store. And you'd walk in and you speak to somebody behind the counter who would then be able to help you and guide you in terms of products. Now you just go online and there is so much information and so much content online that you don't need to do that anymore. In fact, with COVID-19, one of the things that have changed in the beauty industry is they've removed testers, which I think is a really good thing because I don't feel it's particularly hygienic to have testers that people use. But that's now come out. And what people have had to adapt to just over this short period of time over the last three months is being far more accepting of taking advice from people on YouTube videos, as well as taking, so there's a lot of brands that have built an augmented reality into their websites, so that you know, if you're trying on a shade of foundation, whether it's going to work for your skin type, because these are all the barriers to entry you've had before. It's very difficult to try on the texture of something or to try on the color of something to make sure it matches your skin tone. But now with you know virtual reality, augmented reality, all these things are becoming possible. And that's just over a very short space of time. But over the last 10 years, I think one of the other things that has changed dramatically, also thanks to technology, is previously when you wanted to develop a beauty brand, you needed to have a lot of money behind you, generally because you needed to develop large volumes. So working with factories where they did big production runs, that cost a lot of money. And then there was the cost of marketing, TV advertising, print advertising, all of this, maybe having a celebrity as the face of the brand, all of that came at a price. Now you've got a lot of indie beauty brands and a lot of them, interestingly enough, are learning how to formulate their own products. They're going online and learning how to formulate things. They're formulating them at home, perhaps in their kitchens or somewhere at home. And now thanks to things like Amazon and marketplaces, they you can sell very easily online as well. And that gives you access to a global marketplace if you do it correctly. So all of those things have accelerated um, the rate of which people are opening up businesses and obviously the growth of the industry itself. The other thing that's changed is beauty is part of a much wider uh, marketplace called the wellness sector, mm. which is worth $4.2 trillion in 2017. Goodness. And the wellness sector is made up of beauty and personal care. It's made up of other things like tourism as well, wellness in the workplace. So there's a number of other uh, categories that form part of this. And that's because we as consumers have become far more aware 
of taking care of ourselves, um, of our stress levels, the amount of sleep we have, our fitness. So that's all changed in terms of lifestyle has changed. And that's opened up new opportunities that weren't there before. So, for example, one of the new growth um, sectors in the marketplace is, and it's not probably over the last three years, is CBD. Yeah. So what we a lot of people might know is cannabis, and most people probably associate with a recreational drug, is now becoming far more acceptable, and you see it um, coming through in skincare as well as wellness products, um, and it's been added to you know the health and wellness sector as well. So there's new categories that are emerging that weren't there before. And yeah, so all of these things together is what you see now in terms of the growth in the marketplace. I think wellness is an interesting subject. If we come on to the, if we look at, going back to what we were saying, if we look at where we are now, one of the things that struck me about the way that governments have handled the message around the pandemic, Mm. it's, it's rightly been about obviously protecting health and well-being and and certainly if we look at the sort of isolation focus from the outset and the whole lockdown principle one of the things that i constantly coming kept coming back to is none of this appears to be clearly there's a there's a short-term need but none of this seems to be addressing as yet longer term health implications so for example people with underlying medical conditions you know there, there was no there, there was a, a clear message around protecting those people but there wasn't so much of a message around ensuring in the longer term we continue to prevent. Uh, we look after ourselves, I guess, is the, is the basis. So around, whether it's around you know, supplements or diet or mm-hmm. um, fitness or whatever it may be, other than the message of you know, eventually we got to a point where we, we could go out and take our daily walk. But I wonder <laughs> how, how much of you – know, it's a message that is wholly familiar to you because you're in a space that, see, you know, that, that, that is a message that is constantly being uh, transmitted and addressed. But I wonder in terms of the wider kind of global population, is there enough of a focus around health and well-being? And do you think that that's a direction of travel that, to your point around the, uh, the, the, the strength of the wellness industry, that can only really go in, continue to go in one direction in a very, very healthy way? There is, so I think that also differs from market to market. And but it is growing globally um, as a marketplace. The way it's been addressed over the past few months, I think, would obviously differ from market to market as well. Mm. If you go online, there has been, and that's probably because this is what we have been focusing on. There has been a lot of marketing, a lot of news around supplements, about taking care of yourself. Obviously, about in the UK, um, in terms of exercise, so you've had Joe Wicks leading exercise across the UK. They, in terms of, I think what's going to change, and actually the wellness sector also includes altern- alternative medicine. So you've got a lot more focus on things like that in terms of different types of products coming through. So I think that's going to emerge more and more, particularly with what's taking place now. What's taking place now, the COVID-19 situation, will and has impacted on beauty as a whole in terms of the types of products people are using. Because if we're working from home, we're not necessarily going to need to be fully made up every day. If you're wearing a mask, although I'm wearing lipstick at the moment, if you're wearing a mask, you can't really wear lipstick. So I think those sorts of things change. But then also what people are looking at is in terms of, because the focus has now been on washing your hands. So that whole category of products has changed. The same with food. So I think it it has a ripple effect across all these different sectors. 
But the other thing is because we are more conscious of being able to, well, we probably, a lot of us are working from home, so we're not doing that commute and to work anymore. We've got more time to focus on ourselves and taking care of ourselves. So so I think we, so, and I know there's been a big increase in people who meditate as well. So that whole side of taking care of your mind. So the mental health as much as the physical health. So yeah, I think I think, but it does differ from market to market in terms of. I think that comes back to culture, and lifestyle in terms of how people lead their lives. What about, one of the things that struck me about the beauty industry, and it's a broad sweeping statement for which I now apologise, but one of the I think historically might have had. Uh, you look at the issue around sustainability. So if you look at the issues around packaging, for example, and plastic, and and historically that might have been an area whereby the beauty industry would have come in for some criticism, but that now I might argue is leading the way in terms of looking at sustainable packaging and sustainable products. That seems to have been, it seemed, it, it, what sort of innovations are you excited by that you're seeing in the space that you you think that actually this is this is something that is going to be a real game changer? So actually, the beauty industry is still quite heavily criticised in terms of yeah. um, sustainability because if you if if you just go into your bathroom cabinet and you open up your bathroom cabinet, look at how many different products you have, and a lot of those products are plastic. Mm. Now you do you can recycle certain types of plastic, and some some are packaged in glass. But um, one of the reasons why the beauty industry has come under such heavy, um, heavy criticism is because we are one of the largest industries for single use plastic. So people will use the products um, and then throw it away. And that just lands up a lot of the time that doesn't even get recycled. So now with innovation, there are lots of new materials coming through, which are really interesting to see that are sustainable materials. But there are also brands that are looking at um, reducing that single use by offering people the opportunity to refill their products. So there's a really interesting company called Beauty Kitchen, who's doing quite a lot of work in that sector. You've got uh, brands like Lush Cosmetics, who have something called Naked Stores, where not the people, but the products are naked. So um, you go into their stores, and if you want packaging, you can buy some packaging and decant the products into the packaging. But the idea is to move away from packaging as much as possible. So that's the one side is the packaging side. In terms of sustainability, the other side is the ingredients. So a lot of ingredients um, haven't necessarily been good for the planet either. So it is a regulate to a degree. There's a lot of regulation coming into that. So you've got organizations like the Soil Association and consumers are looking to see that um, brands are doing this. So are brands certified in terms of being organic? Are, there's another term which you might be familiar with called clean beauty, which relates to ingredients as well. So it's looking at the types of ingredients we've used in the past and ensuring that some of those ingredients, which aren't beneficial for the planet or for ourselves for that matter, are no longer used in the products. Something that was recently removed from the marketplace not too long ago was microbeads, which you find in exfoliators. You've probably heard about things like facial wipes, you know. So they, the, they are focusing on improving sustainability across the industry. But it's, it's going to take time because even if you look at cosmetics, a lot of cosmetics come in plastic. And it's quite hard to think of alternative packaging um, I'm busy developing a cosmetic brand at the moment. It's hard to find alternative packaging for some of these things. So it will take time. Do, do you get a sense that from a consumer perspective, there's an appetite to to really embrace some of these issues in a serious way? Or do we come back to, 
almost a sense of maybe I'm a bit unfair, quite call it nimbyism, but it's all kind of, you know, we're all aware these are things we should do. But ultimately, if it comes down to that's but that product I really like, and maybe they don't quite do things in a in a way that I'm a hundred percent behind, but actually I really love the product, I'm gonna buy it anyway. So is there is there I, my sense is that to your point, there is a long way we still have to go till this becomes an integral part of just how we behave as consumers. So I think there are certainly consumers out there who are 100% focused on sustainability, not just in beauty products, but also when it comes to food or when it comes to fashion as well. And there are others where they are obviously looking for products that deliver. So, but from a brand perspective, brands are very much aware, certainly um, because we work with brands, helping brands to launch, brands are aware that this is the direction they need to take. And when you talk to the suppliers, the packaging suppliers, they are aware of it as well. So I think as it becomes greater and greater focus from all parties, that's the, you know, that is the direction forward. But it does take time because you have to find alternative materials you can use. I think that if you look at, I guess, points of differentiation, then to have a compelling purpose as a, as a brand or as a business, there's certainly some, there's certainly evidence as to the value behind that. And I've also, I think that from a corporate perspective, much of what I read would suggest that corporate investors uh, around listed businesses are certainly punishing boards for not adhering to their co- corporate social responsibility in a way that historically they might have gotten away with. I think there was a sense of once upon a time, lots of boards knew it was a good thing to do, uh, but actually, is it, if it really impacts shareholder value, are we going to adhere to it? I think now that's gone. I think businesses are genuinely wanting to look at ever increasing ways of doing better, doing more good. In the majority of cases, I don't think that they're, you know, they're always going to be outliers and exceptions, but I think generally people are looking at ways of how they impact the planet, the planet, and therefore how they can do better for all of us, which is, is only to be encouraged. So tell me, you've, you've, you've done some fascinating things yourselves, not least one, one of the things that fascinated me when I was doing a bit of background before we first spoke was just the, the, the great fruit adventure of which I know little. So tell me what's the, what is the great fruit adventure and and I guess, therefore, tell us about how you got involved in it. Great. So I got involved with the Grapefruit Adventure through the founder, Max McGilvery. So Max is the founder of a recruitment company focusing on um, food and produce. So he deals with a lot of the retail, the supermarkets, and also um, not just in the UK, but he also works internationally. So sourcing he doesn't do obviously the sourcing of the product because he does recruitment, but he he's the person who obviously fills the roles for a lot of these suppliers. So, and he's very passionate about food and produce. So Max realized through working in the industry for a long time that six out of 10 children didn't actually know where fruit and vegetables came from. So, and he's also very passionate about um, his motorbike. So he decided, because he was working with companies based in different markets, he he and um, his partner decided that they were going to be cycling or or taking a motorbike rather, all the way through from the UK, across Spain, down to Western Africa, down the East Coast of Africa to Cape Town. And along the way, he would meet up with people that he obviously had relationships with that were in the food industry, the food and produce industry. And then when he met with them, he would be filming where the food comes from. So that at the end of this, they could create content and videos and stories that they could bring back to the UK to share with schools to educate children where food came from. So Max was obviously going into Africa and down to Cape Town. 
I used to live in Cape Town and obviously being South African, I've got relationships in South Africa as well with retailers. And so I became involved to support Max in terms of introducing him to these retailers or to different people that I thought might be of interest to him along his trip. So that's the story. But actually, Max is really interesting as well. Um, as I say, he's the founder of this recruitment company called Red Fox. And he's also the founder of uh, the Great Fruit Adventure. And he's recently set up something called Beanstalk as well, which is more of a social enterprise also in food and produce. So really interesting. And was I love being involved in that project. And what have you loved about being involved in the project? Well, well first of all, I'm very passionate about my country. So I'm very, um, although I've lived in the UK for 20 years, I still call South Africa home and my family live in South Africa, so I don't have any family in the UK. So I tend to go back once a year at least to go and see them. But I'm also very passionate, well, I'm very passionate about um, working with people and helping them as well in terms of realizing um, their dreams. And that's partly, that's a lot of what we do in Bespoke Advantage is working with people to help them realize their dreams. Max is very passionate about the food and produce industry, and he's very passionate about sharing uh, and educating and empowering people. I'm also very passionate about educating and empowering people. So I think in that way, we connected really well. And it's just bringing all of that to people forward in terms of people's minds so people understand more, more about the world and more about the environment and more about um as, as Max was wanting to understand more about where food comes from. For me, it's all about educating people and informing people and helping people, really. So it's, it, you mentioned that it certainly sounds of what you described, Max is an inspiring guy. What about your own inspiration? Who do you admire? Who do you look to? Who do you look up to? Where do you, where do you get your inspiration from? So um, there's a lot of people I'm inspired by, um, but I think when I, looking back to South Africa, actually, there's a lady called uh, Bea Tolman, who is the founder of a company called the Red Carnation Group. Um, they're a luxury hotel group. And her and her husband started up with one hotel in South Africa in Johannesburg. And they've built this amazing business, amazing company. And they own a number of hotels in the UK, um, in Ireland, Florida, uh, Botswana, South Africa. They're all beautiful hotels, um, beautiful in terms of the way they look, but also the way they've put them together because everything that they've done in their hotels has been hand-selected and is tells a story. And when you, st- I've, I've had dinner at um, some of their hotels and I've also stayed at some of their hotels. And when you go there, it's all about the experience. So it's about creating that um, experience and immersing yourself in obviously what is their vision in terms of their hotels. And so for me, that's very inspirational because that's part of what I believe in my business as well is it is about, I love working with people. So it is all about, um, and when people come to us, they're looking for support and advice, but I want to build what they're looking for in terms of their vision and provide that experience for them and inspiration and education. Um, So um, a lot of what, when I looked at what they did, the Tolman family with their group of hotels, that's what I wanted to bring into what we do as well in terms of experience, really leaving people feeling like they've had a great experience, but they've also left with so much more than they came with. Do you think that's what you learned from, that's that's your takeaway from from the Tolman family and what they've created? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Sorry, I was going to say, it's one of the things that struck me when you were talking earlier, when we were talking about the beauty industry, the experiential nature of the industry 
you know, if you like, the, the whole in terms of the the buying of products and the experiential nature that that uh, has historically afforded us, would that would technology have have lost a bit of that, and might that be a place to which we go back? Because my sense is that as consumers, again, so much of the even the retail experience, wonderful though Amazon is, don't get me wrong, it's so convenient, uh, and all the other off- offerings that are out there. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a great shopper. I'm the first to admit, but clearly many are. Uh, and actually, the whole experience of going out for the day and enjoying that, I wondered if that might have been lost and that the whole sense of theatre around retail is something that we might need to get back to and could probably, I think, some retailers learn a great deal from, for example, the hotel industry who typically would do it very, very well. So I think it would be interesting to see over time because it's only been the last few months that we haven't really had retail. Hmm. So so it's still early days, I think, in that respect. But what what has changed, certainly in the beauty industry, and I see it in other industries as well, which is comes back to technology, is about creating community. So if we look at the beauty industry, what has changed, actually what's done really well over probably the last few years, is direct-to-consumer brands. So where brands aren't going into retail, as in retail stores, but they're launching directly to their customers online. And that that's actually proven to be really successful. But I think what's also made that successful is they're building a direct relationship with their customer. So your customers, as a customer, we can now speak to brands. Previously, a brand was something that was at a distance and we were on the other side and we you never really got to speak to the brand. You got, you know, you might open a magazine or watch a program on television or, you know, their latest ad, Christmas adverts. And then you'd go into a store and you'd be able to touch and feel the brand. But We've never really been able to communicate with the brand up until now, but that's changed. So a lot of brands have successfully um, built that community through things like Facebook, Facebook groups or YouTube channels. And as a customer, if you go online and you leave a comment, you now receive something back. Do you you think that's where the shift comes? Do you think that if you look at the place that historically uh, bricks and mortar retailers played in our lives, um, that that landscape is clearly under, and, and it has as a space been under enormous pressure for a long time. I think I'd read a fascinating quote from Harvey Finkelstein, who's the COO of mm-hmm. Shopify. Uh, only a couple of weeks ago, he referred to how the, if I remember this rightly, how the, the, the retail of 2030 had now become the retail of 2020. Mm. So mm. as a consequence of the pandemic, that's just brought technology, it's brought everything forward. The big mm. the shift that would have come over the next 10 years has just been accelerated. Do you think mm. that there'll still be a part to play in the bricks and mortar store in terms of affording the consumer some sort of physical interaction, but that that will, be, that will increasingly play second fiddle perhaps to that sense of community and the digital mm. opportunity that is out there? I think I think that may well be the direction moving forward. Certain, if you look at certain uh, categories like food, I think we certainly will still have supermarkets. Yes, and I think there are I, certain you know that side of things. Online delivery has an enormous you know the thing that struck me that I, I as I understand it online. If you look at the um, the supermarkets, for example, hmm. up until the beginning of this year. Uh, online grocery was only, I think, 7% of total supermarket sales in the mm. UK. I don't know how that reflects with the rest mm. of the world, but 7% in the UK. Uh, it's doubled mm. as a con- over the last four months. So it's taken the best part of 15 years to get to 7% and historically had been the least profitable channel. Um, mm. Is now at 14%. They've still got the same issues around profitability of the channel, mm. but it is, you know, do you think it's still only 14% of, of total grocery sales in the UK? 
That's yeah. an enormous opportunity. We've got such a runway for, you know, how we acquire and consume produce. But actually, yeah, I think that's a, that's a really, the opportunities are vast. I mean, it just, to your point around earlier, the, you know, the world has become a smaller place. The internet has just afforded us huge opportunity. And I think we're only just at the start of it. I think we still, as, as consumers, we still want that experiential side of things as in touch and feel. So f- with foods, you know, the smell of fresh bread or um, because yes. that's different to buying tinned products or frozen products. There are certain things that you still want. And when you're buying fashion, you know, being able to touch fabric and know what that fabric feels like before you buy the product. The same with, I think, beauty some of the challenges, and um, we've seen how people have addressed these over the past few months, but some of the challenges are, if you were launching a new fragrance, how do you smell that fragrance? Do you really want to go and spend £150 on a bottle of fragrance? You've seen. And the same thing, cosmetics is, uh, is coming, you know, has actually seen a dip in sales over the past few months. But then there is all this, as I said earlier, augmented reality, virtual reality, which is, I'm sure, going to benefit things moving forward. I think I had to consider that around fragrance, for example, because yeah. I would that that my sense is that's a deeply personal purchase. You, know, yes. you, you have clearly we're all wired differently. We we like different smells, different fragrances. I hadn't considered that actually. That it is a, it is a very by by its very nature is a very physical purchase experience that you would need to undergo to to make the sale. I guess. Yeah, but also there's all these challenges around retail, as we both know, certainly in the UK. Um, in terms of the cost of rates and rents. Yep. And there's a lot of big retail. I think, um, we, you know, we grew up with department stores. I think all of that's changing now as well. Yes. What, what, it's an interesting one. I'm interested, obviously, yeah. someone who's, who's spent a career in retail. What do you think? What, what's your view? If, if we project forward, I know crystal ball gazing, never easy, but if we were to project forward, say, 10 years, what do you think the high street looks like in the UK? Our street, I think, is going to look very different to what it looks like now. So, it, and actually... You know, why would we call it? I think we're going to have a lot of buildings that we need to think about what we convert those buildings into. A lot of big department stores. I think we will obviously still have retail, as in bricks and mortar. There might be smaller independent retailers. Maybe a lot of the larger retailers will move a lot of their business online because of the cost of rates, rent, space. You know, all of that isn't necessarily financially viable, commercially viable moving forward. But also, I think we're not necessarily going to be shopping like that as consumers either. Mm. So we don't necessarily need to go into these big department stores. We can buy a lot of that online. And probably what we do want to be looking at and, and going in to see is more experiential. So, you know, to a degree, what Apple's done with their stores, where you go in and you can actually try and buy the products, does that change in terms of do we want to be able to interact with things more? I guess that's really what it is. I remember one of the things that I'd seen to your point around Apple, when my kids were very much smaller, one school holidays, they went and did an iMovie in, a, in an Apple store. They did an iMovie kind of study day, you know, to, to learn how mm. to make movies using iMovie. And it was brilliant. They had great fun. They put lots of theater around it. They did a bun- They did it with lots of kids of the similar age. Uh, and Apple, to be fair, did a, I mean, that's, Goodness, they're in their late teens now. It must be 10 years ago. But yeah. then even then, they were still investing heavily in creating that theatre around, yes. around their product. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I think you're right that they're increasingly will we'll, we'll have stores playing a part, but it more might be more about how we engage with that particular brand than necessarily 
um, and how we identify with that brand than necessarily just making the purchase. Because I think those more those more sort of commoditized items increasingly will just be clicking a button, won't it? I think that's the that's the way the future is is heading. Yes, I think so. Um, and the same with fashion, and I think even the same with food and beauty, because some some uh, re, uh, retailers have done this. Waitrose did it in Canary Wharf. So when you went shopping in Canary Wharf and Waitrose, they've also got a bar, and they've you know, so you can sit and eat and drink. So it, it's about how you're engaging with consumers rather than just selling directly to them in a big space. Yeah, really interesting times. So tell me, you, you obviously you invest. A lot of your time, energy, effort in your business and and developing. You, you've mentioned consistently about educating yourself and 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 growth. But what about unwinding? What do you do to relax? What do you do to switch off? So my favourite thing to switch off is travelling. Right. So um, if you gave me a ticket, I'd be gone. Apart from I'd be a bit concerned about planes at the moment. But um, I love travelling, and um, the more I travel, the more I enjoy it. What's, what's so that? Love- any, any particular highlights or the places that you've been to that really stand out for you? Or that? Well, to be honest, what we were supposed to do this year was Botswana, Namibia and Kenya, um, which unfortunately never happened. But um, in terms of travel, China was interesting. Japan I loved. I've been to Japan twice. I loved Japan. What did you love um, about Japan? You actually feel lost in translation. So because people just don't speak English. So you could be, you know, it's, you, you you can't have a conversation and they, they've got beautiful, um, the way they do retail is beautiful. So they have some beautiful stores and the way they package and present everything is beautiful. But you go into restaurants and you don't know what you, you can't, you don't know what you're ordering um, and nobody tells you either. So you, you can order from a picture and you point to the picture and you get the food and you think, well, interesting, what is this? But it is a lovely country and I've been fortunate to have seen a few places in Japan, so that was great. Other than that, I've done quite a bit of the Far East and a lot of Europe, like most of us. I still love Africa. And so I do love going back there. And it it is a big, certainly South Africa is a very big country. And there are so many, it's very different wherever you go. And the climate's beautiful. So, but the other thing I really love doing is being near water. So I did my paddy diving course a number of years ago and I didn't really use it. And then I decided we're getting back into diving. So that's been my focus. So whenever we go on holiday, if there's an opportunity to dive, that's what I love to do. What's your favourite dive? So far, where have I been? Um, Fiji. So that was probably fantastic. The most recent one I did was um, actually Malta, which is actually really good for diving. If you haven't done that, so no, do you I, like- I, I, I have done the paddy qualification. I haven't mm-hmm. dived for probably 20 years. I'm ashamed to say okay. it ought to be something I ought to reconsider or get back into, but yeah, I've, I've, I've not dived. I think that I have a vivid memory. Um, I have an uncle who's a dive master. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a vivid memory of a shark dive that we'd done mm-hmm. uh, in Australia uh, mm-hmm. with, uh, with gray nurse sharks. Um, which was phenomenal, uh, and I was petrified, but it was a great experience. So yeah, but certainly no, Fiji would be would be somewhere. I must be. I mean, the water itself and just the Beautiful. the vivid colours, the uh, the sheer volume of wildlife. You know, just the, the mm. everything, just just incredible. I, I've I've been I've Great Barrier Reef, but that's quite cliche. Mm. I've certainly dived there, and that was incredible. But um, but yeah, I think probably the one that really stands out would have been just off the coast of Western Australia. I was okay. fortunate to I, I uh, sat on the crow's nest of a of a sunken 
World War II destroyer and uh, mm-hmm. was able to hear whales communicating with each other under the water. Fantastic. That was an incredible experience. I'd also recommend South Africa. There's a place called Hans Bay, which is where you can also do uh, shark cage diving. Well, this is slightly different. You go yeah. into a cage and you get lowered in the water. It's on you my list. It's definitely a bucket list <laughs> item for me. That's it. I've got a big birthday coming up in the next year or two, and that's certainly Fantastic. something I plan Well, on. I won't ask you what, what, which birthday <laughs> that is. <laughs> so, are there, is there any really, going back to the travel as opposed to the diving? Where, where is is there a place on the list? If we talk a bucket list, is there a place on the list that you'd harbour ambitions to go to? And, and if so, yes. where might that be? So, um, I've got a birthday coming up in um, due course, and I am wanting to go to the South Pacific islands wow so i love the sea um i love the sun and it's quite well it's far away isn't it so it's a long way away from anywhere but that that for me would be the perfect thing to do is on my birthday be in the south pacific islands one of those beautiful water bungalows crystal clear water diving just enjoying the sunshine and the scenery and yeah that, that for me is idyllic that's a that's a beautiful memory to, uh, to to leave us with. One more question, if I may, before we go. So what, what advice would you give to, to anybody considering setting up their own business today? What advice would you give them? I would say to people, if you have an idea in terms of a product or service that people need, because I, I'm, I'm a great believer in doing something that's purposeful as well. I don't think you should hold back. I think you should go for it because I think, you just need to look around you in terms of what's happened over the past few months. A lot of us hold back on pursuing our dreams because we are worried about losing our our house or losing money or not being successful. But what you realize certainly over the last few months is very little is actually within your control. So if you do have a great idea or this is something that you've been wanting to do for some time, I think now is the time to do it. And I think thanks to, as I keep coming back to technology, the world is a much smaller place. And what you don't know, there are people around who can help you to get to where you want to be. So rather than wait and leave it for too long, now is the time to do it. Fantastic. Janet, it's been great speaking with you. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for your time. It's it's a Friday, so I ought to be have a great weekend ahead. And uh, I look forward to seeing Beauty Brand continue to flourish and indeed, I look forward to hearing about your uh, your travels to the South Pacific on our next chat. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks Steve. It's been great being here. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening to today's Astrology podcast. I really appreciate your uh, audience and ears. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, then uh, why not hop onto iTunes and give us a review? I'd really appreciate anything that you might have to say, any feedback always gratefully received and uh, look forward to hosting you next time. See you soon. Just a reminder, today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners. Visit www.progressotalent.com today for more information.